The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Based on 15 years of homicide survey data from 2001 to 2015, Homicide rates for indigenous women and girls were approximately six times higher at 48.2 per million population than rates for non-indigenous women and girls at 8.2 per million population. Other research suggests that indigenous women are 12 times more likely to be murdered or missing than any other women in Canada and 16 times more likely than Caucasian women. On February 24, 1976, the body of a 30-year-old First Nations woman and Indigenous activist was found by the side of the road in South Dakota, in the United States. What first appeared to be death from exposure turned out to be an execution-style murder, and rumors flew about her being an FBI informant. This led to a decades-long investigation which exposed corruption, lies, and ultimately more questions than answers. This is the story of Anime Aquash. Anime Aquash was born on March 27, 1945 to parents Mary Ellen Pictou and Francis Thomas Levi in the Indian Brook Reserve of Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia in Canada. Born into the Mi'kmaq tribe, Anna May was proud of her Indigenous heritage and dedicated her life to advocating for Indigenous rights and people. Her love for her heritage was due in large part to her stepfather, Noel Sapir, who married Mary Ellen in 1949. Noel was a Mi'kmaq traditionalist and taught her and her family about their Indigenous culture and the importance of preserving their heritage and religion. Anna May had two older sisters named Mary and Becky, and a younger brother named Francis. And although they grew up in poverty, these years were spent learning about her people. In 1953, Anna May developed recurring and persistent eye infections, and by the time she was properly diagnosed with tuberculosis, a potentially deadly bacterial infection, it had spread to her lungs. She recovered, but the effects lingered for some time. Her stepfather worked as a seasonal farmhand and traditional craft maker, and the family lived in Pictou's Landing, which was another Mi'kmaq reserve in Nova Scotia's North Humberland Strait. I read two different accounts of the timeline in my research, but what I can put together is that in 1956, Anna May's stepfather, Noel, passed away from cancer, and so the family returned to Shubenacati. During this time, she went to an off-reserve high school, where her grades steadily declined from straight A's to failing grades, and this was due primarily to constant abuse, racial slurs, and bullying that she received from classmates because of her First Nations heritage. She managed to remain in school, though, refusing to drop out. But then, at 16 years old, Anna May returned home one day 
to find her mother had run off and abandoned her and her siblings to marry another man. Anna Mae dropped out of school and began working as a farmhand, harvesting berries and potatoes to make ends meet. Another report states that she went to Maine to work as a farm laborer as well. During this time, many First Nations began moving to Boston to seek a better life, and Anna Mae sees this opportunity as well. Reportedly, as a dare, at just 17 years old, she and another young Mi'kmaq man named Jake Maloney moved to Boston and set up a home together. Not initially a couple, they did fall in love and had two children, a daughter, Denise, born in 1964, and Debbie, born in 1965. Although they never married legally, Anna Mae and Jake considered themselves married. Now, just to mention, another source claimed they married, but that she caught him cheating and they divorced. I'm not sure exactly, but I thought I'd mention it as I did read both that they were married and that they didn't marry. During this time in Boston, there was a large influx of First Nations persons, and this is when Anna Mae became involved in activism. She met members of the American Indian Movement. Now, I've heard it called AIM, and I've also heard it called AIM, so I'm going to call it AIM for this, but um, note that I've heard it both ways, and I'm not really sure which is more preferred. But it was founded in 1968 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, originally created to advocate against police brutality the movement grew to encompass multiple indigenous issues, including treaty rights, poverty, systemic racism, education, and preserving indigenous cultures, and it still exists today. Some well-known activism events by the AIM include the Trail of Broken Treaties, which was a cross-country caravan march from the West Coast to Washington, D.C. in 1972, which advocated for tribes' treaty-making authority, among other demands. Another was the occupation of Alcatraz, which lasted 19 months from 1969 until 1971 and involved 89 indigenous activists living on the island. Quote, the protest group chose the name Indians of All Tribes, or I-O-A-T, for themselves. IOAT claimed that under the Treaty of Fort Laramie between the U.S. and the Lakota tribe, all retired, abandoned, or out-of-use federal land was to be returned to the Indians who once occupied it. As Alcatraz Penitentiary had been closed on March 21, 1963, and the island had been declared surplus federal property in 1964, a number of Red Power activists felt that the land qualified for a reclamation, end quote. The incident at Wounded Knee in 1973 was another very publicized event in which a 71-day siege took place on the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre and protested the presidency and failed impeachment of Richard A. Wilson of the Oglala Lakota of the Pine Ridge Indian Reserve in South Dakota. There is so much more information regarding the work of the AIM, 
and the ongoing injustices against the First Nations people, which I strongly encourage you read more about. I will leave links to the articles I read regarding these events. I'm still learning myself, but it is important to continue to share these stories and to help spread awareness and keep these difficult conversations going so that we never forget what the Indigenous people have endured. History needs to be shared. Through AIM and the people she met, Anna May began working in the program Teaching and Research in Bicultural Education School Project, or the acronym TRIBES, which focused on teaching young First Nations persons about their history and culture. Anna May was present at multiple significant AAM movements, including the incident at Wounded Knee, the Trail of Broken Treaties, both of which I mentioned, and also the Mayflower II protest, which took place on Thanksgiving Day in 1970 and involved the occupation of the ship in Boston Harbor. Anna May was involved in the Boston Indian Council, which is still active today and now is named the North American Indian Center of Boston and works to improve conditions for Indigenous persons in the city. In Boston, she met a man named Nogiashik Akwash, and the two began dating. In 1973, when she traveled to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation for the incident at Wounded Knee, she married Nogiashik Akwash in a native ceremony by a Lakota elder. She was passionate about First Nations rights and dove deep into the growing fight to have Indigenous issues at the forefront of conversation. She wanted real, tangible change to occur. Writing to her sister at the incident at Wounded Knee, she said, quote, These white people think this country belongs to them. The whole country changed, with only a handful of raggedy-ass pilgrims that came over here in the 1500s, and it can take a handful of raggedy-ass Indians to do the same, and I intend to be one of those raggedy-ass Indians." End quote. Furthermore, on her first night in South Dakota, she was told that newbies were on kitchen duty, and she responded by saying, quote, I didn't come here to wash dishes. I came here to fight. End quote. This sentence encompasses the heart of Anna Mae and her unwavering beliefs that led her throughout her life and led to her rise within the AIM. Anna May worked for the Red Schoolhouse Project, which was a cultural school initiative for the Indigenous students in the city, and she was based in Minneapolis at the time. She also participated in an armed occupation, and I don't want to say this incorrectly, it's either the Anisinaabe Park or Anisinaabe Park in Kenora, Ontario, by Ojibwa and AIM activists and supporters to protest the treatment of the Ojibwa people and were asking for the Office of the Indian Affairs to intervene and make changes to improve conditions. She also continued to work with the Lakota people and the elders at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Anna May also traveled to Gresham or Gresham, Wisconsin, to partake in the month-long armed occupation of the Alexian Brothers Novitian, which is a Catholic abbey that was on land belonging to the Menominee tribe, and since the abbey was abandoned, they wanted the land to be returned to them. In late 1974, a prominent member of the AIM named Douglas Durham 
was exposed as being an FBI informant. He was denounced by the AIM and by Anime publicly, and a press conference was held in February of 1975, at which he was expelled from the AIM. During this time, Anime separated from her husband and began an intimate relationship with one of the AIM leaders named Dennis Banks. She was also close to AIM leader Leonard Peltier and other prominent members, being known as, quote, recognized and respected as an organizer in her own right and was taking an increasing role in the decision-making of AIM policies and programs, end quote. Also during the year of 1975, Anna May was arrested twice on federal weapons charges, but in both instances was released quickly. This led to the belief that Anna May was also working as an FBI informant and put into place the events that ultimately led to her death. The remainder of this episode is available on my Patreon account. And just a little bit about that. So, today is my birthday, and I wanted to release a sneak peek of my latest Patreon-exclusive episode. I do have one additional episode that is available on there now, but I did not prioritize my Patreon account this past year, only because I started my own business just after launching this Patreon, And there was an adjustment period, and honestly, I just needed some time. But it is back, so in addition to the two episodes I release on the 15th and the 30th of each month, you will also have access to a third episode that is available exclusively on Patreon. I have two tiers available, so for a minimum of $1 per month, you can join the Gift Giver tier just to support my efforts. This option can be used for a one-time gift also. Or you can join the supporter tier, which for just $5 per month allows you access to one additional episode per month and Patreon-exclusive content. As I've mentioned previously, I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself, except for a few past episodes where I did bring someone on to help with research. So your support means a lot to me and allows me to keep sharing these stories to help spread awareness of the important issue of violence against women in all its forms. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sean Marie, and I hope you'll join me next time for another story.